0: Conclusion. Christianity is a revolutionary religion. This does not mean that Christianity advocates violence or rebellion against authority. Christianity is revolutionary in the most profound and basic sense, because it destroys idols from the inside out, because it brings idols like Dagon of the Philistines to fall on their faces before the living word. As Herbert Schlossberg has written, Christianity's continual willingness to stand against culturally approved evil in the name of Christ makes of the church a revolutionary force. Christian revolution begins with the individual and has its concrete effect in the culture. Whether or not it exercises control, it always takes its stand with the external requirements of God against the idolatrous attractions of the moment all orders, old and new, are subject to the same eternal law that the church serves, and therefore are judged by the same standard. This is the kind of Christian revolution that we have been defending throughout this book. It is this kind of revolution that Dave Hunt and others believe to be either impossible or undesirable, but we believe that this is precisely what the Lord has called us to. Eschatology and Orthodoxy We have tried to show that Dave Hunt's insinuations about Christian Reconstruction are entirely unfounded. The distinctive positions of these writers have deep roots in the history of the church, particularly in American church history. Those who advocate these positions are far from being New Age sympathizers. Most importantly, we have tried to show that these teachings are based on the Bible. The most visible issue between Mr. Hunt and Reconstructionists is eschatology. Reconstructionists are postmillennialists. That is, they believe that the gospel of Christ will triumph in history over all idolatries, and that men and societies will be transformed as the gospel penetrates the world. Mr. Hunt is a premillennialist. He believes that Christ will return soon, and that he will not defeat his enemies in history. Instead, Hunt believes that Christ will come to rescue his people from destruction and reign on earth for a thousand years. Only after the millennium ends, in the failure, will the kingdom be established in any tangible way. Though Hunt believes that Christ presently reigns in the hearts of Christians, he will establish the kingdom only in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We have written this book to clarify the debate. Mr. Hunt's books have raised questions in many people's minds about the orthodoxy of some dominion teachers. Whether or not Hunt intended to raise such questions, we do not know. Whatever his intentions, his books have left that effect— Other premillennial writers, David Wilkerson in particular, have been more explicit, calling the Reconstructionist position on the timing of Christ's return the final apostasy. As we have stressed throughout this book, millennial positions have never been tests of orthodoxy. Certain doctrines of eschatology, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting have been included in the creeds, but throughout the history of the church, various millennial positions have coexisted within Christ's church. Christians have always differed on the timing of Christ's return. While we believe that one's millennial position is important, and while we should not be indifferent to these differences, we do not label Hunt, Wilkerson, Jimmy Swaggart, Peter Lalonde, Hal Lindsey, or anyone else a heretic simply because he has a different view of the details of eschatology. We consider these men to be brothers in the Lord because, as Richard B. Gaffin Jr. has put it, what we share is more important than what divides us we share Christ, and Christ is not divided. There are some teachers, prominent in certain charismatic circles, whose teaching is contrary to creedal orthodoxy. There are some teachers, as we have already noted, whose statements about the Christian status in Christ seem to violate central elements of Christianity. These men should be called to account, as Hunt and others have done. But what happens now? What do Christian churches do when teachers are charged with heresy? In the case of those whose teaching is contrary to creedal or orthodoxy, we think that the debate needs to move beyond a battle of books or public debates on radio and television. It is important first for critics of these teachers to determine precisely what they mean. If the problem is merely semantic, the charismatic teachers will gladly drop confusing terms. If the problem is doctrinal, the debate should move into the process that Jesus outlined in Matthew 18. The teachers in question should be admonished individually, If they do not repent, they should be admonished by a small delegation. If they continue in their heresy, a church trial should follow. If a church court finds them guilty of heresy, they should be dealt with accordingly. In other words, some kind of judicial process should ensue. But it is important to make a distinction between these charismatic kingdom theologians and non-charismatic Christian Reconstructionists. Neither Hunt nor anyone else has shown that Reconstructionists have abandoned a single article of the creeds. On the contrary, Christian Reconstructionists are devoted champions of creedal orthodoxy. Hunt has noted correctly that Reconstructionists do not share his view of the millennium. But this issue is not a matter of heresy, but of doctrinal differences within the orthodox faith. Thus, our plea is that Hunt and others refrain from labeling Christian Reconstructionists as heretics or apostates or even unintentionally implying that this is the case. Only then will it be possible to discuss these issues and even disagree in the loving manner that should characterize members of the one body. In short, we are calling on Dave Hunt, David Wilkerson, Jimmy Swaggart, Earl Polk, Robert Tilton, Gary North... R.J. Rush Dooney, and everyone else involved in this debate to line up with the creeds of Christ church. This must be the starting point of any discussion, because only in this way can borderline between heresy and orthodoxy be determined. Utopian dream or historical reality? We do not wish to respond to charges and insinuations of heresy and complicity with the New Age movement by making unfounded counter-charges of our own. Still, we believe that it is enormously important for Christians like Mr. Hunt, who are not inclined to work for changes in modern society, to ask whether they themselves might be aiding New Age and other forms of humanism. Herbert Schlossberg writes, Christians who resist acknowledging any close correspondence between their faith and the direction that history takes strangely echo the position taken by the reigning humanist establishment. As Richard Newhouse has pointed out, their stand is precisely that of the modern secularists who wish to banish Christian ideas from influencing public society. This understanding of Christian action aids its enemies by reinforcing the notion of the supposed irrelevance of Christian faith. By, perhaps unintentionally, encouraging Christians to abandon cultural involvement, Hunt has aided the humanists who want precisely the same thing. This danger is not of merely theoretical importance. The Russian Orthodox Church, for example, has found itself in precisely this position within the Soviet regime. The Russian Church faces external pressures that cannot be imagined by Americans. One would think that these pressures would be strongly resisted by Christian leaders. On the contrary, as Soviet dissident Evgeny Barabanov has noted, the surprising fact is that the external limitations on the life of the Russian church correspond to the secret desires of many ecclesiastics. Russian churchmen have adopted the belief that the mass itself is Christianity, and accept a view of the church in which there is of course no room for the problems of the Christianization of Russia. For many Russian Christians, Christianity has been reduced from being a teaching about the new life to a mere caring for one's own soul. As a result of this, the earthly aspect of life and the whole structure of social relations turned out to be empty and immune to the influence of the truth. Instead of balancing heavenly and earthly concerns, heavenward aspirations often went hand in hand with execration of the earth. In other words, in the Soviet Union, the reduction of Christianity has gone hand-in-hand with the advance of totalitarianism. Not only have Reconstructionists been called theological upstarts, they have also been labeled utopians. It would take another volume fully to refute this charge. Another quotation from Herbert Schlossberg's superb Idols for Destruction must suffice for the moment. To expect a transformation of society that results from changed people is not an idealistic hope that can never come to pass. It is a matter of historical record. In the midst of the nature worship of the second millennium before Christ— Israel introduced the dynamism of a people who worshipped the god beyond nature. As long as Israel maintained the distinctiveness of this heritage, it alone among its neighbors built a society based on justice, one that recognized that there was an objectively understood ethic beyond the exigencies of power. Much later, the new Christian church infused the Mediterranean world with the same vision. This social transformation made Western civilization what it was. Love became the central idea in the dominant ethic, so much so that idolatry adopted its language and actions and was thereby made tolerable for a time. Far from being utopian, we are simply urging the church to do what it has done in many ages and in many nations, premillennial Christian Reconstruction. Though we have stressed the eschatological issue in this book, this is really on the surface of a deeper issue. If eschatology were only or even the central issue, we would not find, as we do, some premillennial writers adopting a Christian reconstruction agenda. David Schnitker, for example, has recently written a small book entitled Christian Reconstruction from a Pre-Tribulational Perspective distributed by the Southwest Radio Church of Oklahoma City. Schnitger rejects postmillennialism because it is built upon a figurative system of interpretation in great areas of Bible prophecy. But he adds, Apart from this defect, I find the term Christian reconstruction to be a valid one, and certainly this concept is not the exclusive property of postmillennialists. The Bible does apply to all of life. Christ is Lord of all the earth, and it is a valid task of all Bible-believing Christians to seek and bring every area of personal and corporate life into obedience to the word of God. Rather than desert a good concept simply because it is misused, we should seek to be reconstructionist within the biblical, i.e. premillennial, eschatological framework. Schnitger supports his conclusions by arguing that the phrase last days does not refer merely to the end of the world, rather he believes the events of the last days are general conditions that characterize the entire church age. Though evil will not be progressively eradicated, there is still the possibility of a progressive growth in strength and influence of the church. He even presents statistics to show how the church has grown through the centuries. His interpretations of the parables of Matthew 13 are very much the same as our interpretations. From this theological basis, Schnitger outlines a Christian reconstruction agenda for the end of the 20th century. Including pro life activism, the building of strong Christian homes, Christian schools, and Christian involvement in law and politics. In addition to this kind of activism, he emphasizes that Christians should always be at work building strong and loving churches, supporting evangelism and missions, and engaging in individual discipleship. Here is a pre tribulational, premillennialist who thinks that Christians need to be involved in Christian reconstruction. In eschatology, he believes that Christ will come to rapture his saints before the tribulation begins. In other words, Christ's people will escape the worst period of history. It would seem that Christians have little reason to be concerned about the state of the world. After all, they will escape the terrors of the tribulation. Moreover, he believes that this tribulation period is inevitable. The most logical question in the world seems to be, why polish brass on a sinking ship? Yet, Schnitger criticizes the pessimism of most pre-trib, Premillennialist and encourages them to get involved. Thus, we have at least one premillennialist writer who is also a Christian Reconstructionist, and there may well be more like Mr. Schnitger. When we recognize this fact, it becomes clear that the fundamental and distinctive element of Christian Reconstruction is not eschatology. It is perhaps difficult to sustain a Reconstructionist position without a long-term time frame, yet Schnitger's book indicates that it is at least possible for Christians to be both premillennial and Reconstructionist. The Centrality of Ethics The millennial issue, then, is not the deepest issue. The deepest issue is ethics— David Schnitger is a Christian Reconstructionist because he believes that Christians should live in obedience to the Word of God in every area of life. He advocates Christian Reconstruction because he realizes that Christ is Lord and King of all things. We believe he is mistaken in one fundamental point. God is pleased with obedience, and he demonstrates his pleasure by blessing his faithful people. Thus, as Christians live in obedience to the Word, they will prosper. A community of faithful Christians will also prosper. Righteousness exalts a nation, Proverbs 14.34 compared Deuteronomy 28. A reliance on biblical ethics leads to an optimistic eschatology. Aside from this flaw, however, Schnitger is on the right track. The reason why Hunt and others object to Christian reconstruction is not merely that they have a different eschatological position, A more significant underlying reason is that Reconstructionists advocate the application of biblical law to every area of life. Hunt himself, to his credit, emphasizes obedience. Being a Christian does not come about through superficial belief in the existence of a historical person named Jesus of Nazareth who did miracles and taught sublime truths. It involves personally receiving him into one's heart and life as Savior and Lord and believing that he died for one's sins and rose from the dead. This is the gospel, good news, which, if truly believed, will transform one's life. Genuine faith is based upon understanding and results in obedience. Acts 6-7 tells us that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Paul preached obedience to the faith among all nations, Romans one five sixteen through 26 and warned of the judgment that would one day come upon all who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 Hunt insists, if we are to be biblical Christians, God's word must be our guide in all we say and do, no matter how unpopular that makes us. We agree wholeheartedly with that statement. We cannot stress too strongly our agreement with Hunt's principle. As Christians, we are governed by scripture in every area of life and thought. Though we are in agreement with Hunt on this principle, he is inconsistent, we believe, in applying it. In an interview with Peter Waldron, for example, Hunt said that if he were to become a congressman, he could not enforce his Christian beliefs because he would have to represent people who did not share those beliefs. He would witness to his colleagues, but he would not impose Christian morality on a non-Christian populace. In one sense, we agree with Hunt fully. We do not believe that Christianity can be imposed from the top down. As we have pointed out previously, we are not political pyramidists. We believe that Christianity will transform society as people are transformed by the gospel. In another sense, all law is imposed morality. Every law is involved with ethics. The question is not ethical law versus unethical law. The question is which ethical system will provide the foundation for law. We believe that the Bible should provide the moral foundations for law. There are, for example, clear standards in scripture for civil government. The Bible gives the state authority to punish with the sword, Genesis 9, Romans 13. The state has the authority to punish murder and other crimes. Hunt seems to agree in principle that the Bible should be the foundation of civil law. Yet when it comes to passing laws in Congress, Hunt indicates that he would not impose biblical morality. Given the biblical requirements for the state, what would obedience mean for a congressman? What would Congressman Hunt for example, do about abortion? Would he work for legislation to change the existing laws? What if the majority of Americans liked abortion? Would Hunt impose a law against murdering unborn children on an unwilling populace? What about homosexuality? Would Congressman Hunt work to prohibit this perversion that is explicitly condemned in scripture? What if he were representing San Francisco? Would he represent his constituency by working for gay rights we must emphasize again that we are not obsessed with the political sphere christians should promote good politics because to paraphrase c s lewis there is bad politics all around us but politics is not the answer to our cultural dilemmas We focus on Hunt's view of politics because it illustrates the centrality of ethics and indicates, we think, his confusion about Christian ethics in general. Hunt's comments on law and morality illustrate that he does not consistently apply his basic, very sound premise about the place of obedience to the Bible in the Christian's life. We admit that there are many complexities and ambiguities in political life, but we believe that the issues we have referred to and many others finally come down to simple obedience to the Lord. We cannot imagine a Christian justification for legalized abortion on demand, nor for legitimized sodomy. We believe that Hunt shares our opinions on these issues. The problem is implementing biblical principles in society. Obedience is, for Hunt, an essential part of the Christian life. Yet he tends to restrict the realm of obedience to the personal and individual sphere. Witnessing to other congressmen would be a fine thing to do. It is the most important thing Congressman Hunt could do, but we suspect that Congressman Hunt would also seek to change the abortion laws. We suspect that he would do what he could do to limit homosexual activity and to prevent it from being an accepted legal lifestyle. Such activity would be consistent with Hunt's principle of obedience, but it would be inconsistent with Hunt's public statements about morality and politics. We hope that Hunt would be consistent to his principle. Hunt is not opposed to the application of the Bible, but he tends to apply it within certain limited areas of life. We believe that it would be more consistent with his own strong and commendable emphasis on obedience for Hunt to insist that obedience extends to every area of life. And we believe that his inconsistency on this point accounts for much of his opposition to dominion Christianity. Conclusion Christianity has triumphed over idolatry before, and it can do so again. Christianity has brought peace to warring tribes, transformed barbarians into champions of justice and mercy, brigands into servants of the poor, and rapists into defenders of women. But a triumphant Christianity must be a complete Christianity. We cannot take every thought captive without adequate ammunition. We cannot fight giants and dragons with a pocket knife. We must wield a double-edged sword. We cannot satisfy the world. World's hunger with a diet of milk. Men and women must have bread and wine and meat. If we are to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord, we must have a full message. If we are to transform the whole world through the gospel of Christ, we must preach the whole gospel. If we are to reduce the world to the lordship of Jesus, we must be done with the reduction of Christianity.